welcome to episode two of Leading Insights. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Catherine Calderwood, Scotland's Chief Medical Officer. I'm Dr. Catherine Calderwood. I'm an obstetrician by background and I'm the Chief Medical Officer for Scotland. And tell us a little bit about how you came to be in the position that you are. So the, the, the Chief Medical Officer, I suppose, is the, is the most senior medical advisor to the government. It's not a role that I really knew much about. In the past, it's been a public health position, and that was for good reason, because there were certain statutory requirements for the government to um, do for the health of the population. And so traditionally, that was a role that wouldn't have, I suppose, known a lot about as an obstetrician. But I was, we were at a time of, of really good change, actually, in obstetrics, when we were starting to introduce a lot more scanning and a lot more prominence of women's health care, particularly maternity care. And I was an obstetrician working in Edinburgh, and I was delivering some of the screening and some of the um, changes that the government policy had decided, which was very good. But what I was realising, probably subconsciously, that the the way we were being advised to deliver some of these changes didn't make sense to me as the obstetrician having to actually scan the pregnant woman, speak to her, talk about the screening. So uh, for some reason I was looking in the BMJ jobs pages on a Sunday night and looked at the public health section. Why did I do that? <laughs> and in the, well, there was a, an advert for a, a women and children's advisor for Scottish Government. And I thought, oh, that's probably who's doing the job that is making me do my my um, job in in the NHS and that maybe I could do it better than I think it's being done at the moment. Possibly a high risk strategy. I told that story at my interview <laughs> <laughs> and they gave me the job. They did apparently interview other people and so that was two days a week and I continued on labour ward and doing my high-risk antenatal clinics and working away but two days a week I was in government and I thought at that time that that would that was probably going to be enough and fine and I I, I really enjoyed that combination and I, I always envisaged I would just go back to what I was which I still am I suppose an obstetrician and another job um, came up within the government because somebody left and then somebody else moved away and I ended up with much broader than women and children's I did some uh, surgery, advice for surge, surgery and advice for screening and advice much wider than being my own technical knowledge and I find that actually I quite liked it and I could apply a lot of what I was talking about it didn't, I didn't need to be the expert and I then got a job in NHS England which was a very um, it had just started NHS England was a new concept and they wanted a maternity and women's health advisor and I was known in England because of the Scottish job and so they came after me and asked me to apply and at the time I thought well this is this is odd I work in Scotland I'm working for Scottish government what on earth would NHS England how could that work and I was interviewed and and got that job and they asked me actually in that interview what what are you going to say if it's the Scottish government and the UK government, NHS England, and they say, how can you be advising both governments? And I said, well, the women and babies are the same. 
and I will be giving the same clinical advice regardless of the politics. Mm -hmm. Which made all the interviewers laugh and was obviously the right answer because it was, and it was a very, it was very, looking back, I was two days a week in Scotland and two days a week in England most weeks, some weeks it was different and I was going to Westminster one day and Holyrood and the next day. And it was, so that was really interesting. But again, I still thought that that would be me. I would do that for a while and be a clinician again full-time. And then the CMO job came up and I was encouraged to apply, but sort of thought, well, let's just put my hat in the ring and not. I, I really didn't think that that would be some, a job I would get. I was, um, there'd never been a woman. Uh, I'm, I'm perhaps not as senior in years as previous CMOs. And, um, Therefore, I, I didn't think that that was, that was a realistic um, opportunity. But it turned out that it was. And so I, I was offered the job, and, and that was four and a half years ago. Did you, did you ever perceive that there was like a glass ceiling to break through? So I, I, in, my, in my medical career as an obstetrician, no, definitely not. I think I was really well supported. I had a really good clinical director. I worked less than full time when my children were younger. I think I had brilliant support, it was nothing, no discrimination made between male and female obstetricians, trainees, and, and that was a really supportive environment. I don't know whether that's, that's because that's obstetrics, so it's quite a, the glass ceiling was not, that wasn't an issue, so perhaps my, my attitude was therefore that why would, I, why would I not apply to be the CMO, mm. why would the fact that there had never been a woman before put me off. I, I didn't see myself as anything other than a, an ambitious doctor who had the skill set possibly to do it. So I, I, it's, it's very interesting though that that particularly at the time initially when I was appointed there, there were some questions interestingly put to me by people who when they met me shook my hand and said congratulations. I was surprised that you were appointed. And I looked them straight in the eye and said, what exactly was it about my appointment that surprised you? It was very odd that they were never absolutely able to articulate it out loud. So that I, I, I faced quite a lot of that. In just little snippets, met somebody I still remember in the street who again did the same, shook my hand and, and made some pseudo-complimentary but actually uh, slightly slightly cynical about well we'll see we'll see how you get on type attitude so so maybe that um, that external attitude I think there was concern which I had thought through actually before the interview that, that when they usually had somebody who'd perhaps been a doctor for 30 years or approaching the latter part of their career and I was I was not that person and actually the reality is that once I, I think I hope once people have seen my role and seen me in my role th those sort of slightly cynical and skeptical attitudes completely disappeared I, I then have found well, I suppose once I once I started to be the CMO and produce some visible you know was visible and was was somebody that was going out and talking to people that actually that was um, they, they thought oh well you know she's credible and and those thoughts of of what would it be like um, disappeared.
I wondered whether I should tell I should uh, my my actual interview story, but you can just think about whether you want to put. Oh, this go on, out. tell it. Yeah. So one of the interviewers said, "So what are all the what are all the doctors going to make of you? After all, you are just a slip of a girl." And I said, "I think you'll find that when they meet me, they'll find I'm not just a slip of a girl." Um, they all laughed. It is interesting, isn't it? Because you, you know, I have recently done a talk about women in healthcare, having not really known anything about it and never felt disadvantaged. But then when you think about it and when you ask your colleagues, you know, what do you think about being women in healthcare? Oh, I've never been disadvantaged. But I do remember when I, I was told, I was picked from the group to be the one to go and ask for the CT scan because I was the girl and I could flutter my eyelashes and get the CT scan from the radiologist. And I remember that, you know, and, and these things stick in your memory, being told to hurry up with your training because you were still a junior registrar because you'd had maternity leave mm. and these things. So they do affect you or yeah, they stick with there are you. Little, little snippets, aren't they? And do you think that that motivated you more? Yeah, yes, because I think I, I probably, I actually think that interview question was a test to see how I would react as opposed to a, a firm question because actually the, the evidence then was afterwards there were people who, who came over to me in a very patriarchal, what would you know, you're young and you know, was, that was the insinuation and actually I, I think that being able to face up to the fact that that was always going to be actually quite a quite a challenge if you have 140 years of only men towards the end of their career and suddenly somebody who looks completely different who sounds completely different and who who in in some people's minds wouldn't have had the experience to be the most senior medical advisor and did you feel as though there was a different reaction with your clinical colleagues to the Scottish government colleagues or, or most of these situations? No, they, yeah, they thought it was brilliant. I'm, I, I still have my antenatal clinic when I can get to it on, on a Friday morning. And that's, I'm the only CMO ever in across the four nations to, to see patients still. And so that's a very powerful thing. I think when I tell that story, clinicians think well, she's still you know I'm, I'm not doing on call I, I don't do I'm not up in the middle of the night anymore so I'm not a, I'm not doing a full-time clinical job so it's different and I recognize that but I, I feel like people still see that I'm one of one of them and that I understand some of the you know mm. some of the, str the stresses and the demands and I go to the clinic and the you know the, the computer won't log on and the bleeps are down and there's somebody's off sick and so you you know the reality of it of course so how did the concepts of realistic medicine first form that's a yeah it's a good question I, I i look back which maybe i'll come back to about being an obstetrician in in that but the probably i, I was i went around the country i was really determined i had heard that sir david carter was a really popular cmo because he had was seen to be out visiting. He went to the hospitals, he didn't just go to the royal infirmaries, he went all over the country and he seemed to be liked because he was visible and I thought that that was a really good place to start. So the first six or eight months I went everywhere, every invite I got, I was all over the place. I went to 
talk, I went to meet people, I went to see GP practices, I was, and, and that actually, for a start, if, if you like Scotland, that was a nice time to see around and see what healthcare looks like in different bits of Scotland. And the stories I heard over and over were about, about people feeling under such pressure. And I heard also about people almost describing that they sometimes felt forced into giving people treatment or that they felt they didn't have an option of, of really talking people out of treatment. And they, there were, um, I suppose, several very personal stories from, from medical professionals who'd had relatives, very close relatives, in, the, in our system. And they felt out of control. They felt they couldn't be, um, they didn't feel empowered to discuss really what that relative of theirs wanted. And at the same time, I read quite a lot of literature about doctors as patients and about those concepts which we have described, of course, in realistic medicine, that, that actually some of the time we wouldn't have less treatment or different treatment or make different choices than we actually talk to our patients about. And I, I couldn't understand that because it made me very uncomfortable because I thought, well, what is it I know about the uh, treatment I would offer? Why would I not have it or my, give it my, my child or my family? But yet I, it's okay for somebody else. That's where I thought, why are we not realistic? And realistic is a really easy word. It's the, it's the word that people understand in language. And it just, seemed, it just felt like, why was, why was medicine doing stuff that wasn't realistic? Or at least offering people a choice? Because, of course, doing less is not right for everybody. But, it, but at least let people go in with their eyes open. Mm -hmm. So that's that. And, I, and then perhaps reflecting, I do think obstetrics is quite a maternity care, more generally really, I should say, is, is quite, we, we think about the family, so we're the only doctors that have a family member in theatre with us. We surgeons don't usually let somebody watch. That's a funny concept, but that's just normal. For us, we, we talk to women about choice of, of how they would like to deliver their baby. We, we talk about choice. We don't allow people usually to choose their hip replacement or their you know so we have a we have an, a quite an open communication with people but as patients but also with their families and I wonder whether that then was almost because quite a lot of what's in maternity care is quite this is realistic and quite normal to be like that so it's and, and also of course lots and lots of pregnant women are not ill at all so we are not treating illness all the time so realistic medicine kind of flexes and evolves each year. How do you empower your team to take that forward? It's been, I mean, it's been amazing, realistic medicine. I, I didn't ever think it would be anything like the impact that it's had. I, it's, it's humbling, really. It's amazing to look, because I, I, sometimes I'm sending somebody a link to the first report or some bit of it, and I go, put into Google realistic medicine, and, and that's pages and pages and pages and pages before I can find the first report, because so much realistic medicine pops up in health board policies, in commentaries, in people having seminars and somebody you know, giving talks. So the, the, the way that really without, I, I don't think we set out to, to do it like this. And maybe you'd say if you had a blank sheet of paper, we should have been organized and had a method. And, but it, it seems to have really touched 
people's own professional values, but it make, makes sense to people, I suppose. It's not a government document that has appeared and people read and think, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. Mm-hmm. And that maybe is, is that the key to it? Because I don't think realistic medicine's any, it's not new. I haven't invented something that nobody had ever done before, but what seems to have done is crystallised lots of different aspects of people's care and interaction with their patients. And, that the, the way that um, people want to practice, and it's, as you know, far beyond medicine and doctors. So that that evolving has really come as feedback, I think. So we had the first realistic medicine report. We, we had tons and tons of responses from people, from people saying, we, we love this, we want a bit of it. And, and I suppose the next realistic medicine realizing realistic medicine was all about the stories of people lots of examples of where actually this was happening already mm-hmm. and so that was re- that was really natural because it was it then grew from what people told us all across Scotland multidisciplinary teams it it was already beyond the doctors that I had originally written to i think that's how we've tried to keep it going so something new each time I think that's important because we could have just philosophized over and over about the same concepts and given more and more stories on realistic care but but we wanted to keep a conversation going we, we then have added in a, a value-based health care and how we talked about really values so that's the values of us as professionals but also the values of the people we're looking after everybody's different and then the value as in value for public money, value-based healthcare, where we we must look after public money, but we we also have to provide a, a service. And there's there's our, there are tensions, and there's a whole um, just uh, training that we have introduced for people across Scotland to 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 really have people formally trained in, in value-based healthcare, and including our colleagues in finance, which I think we believe has not, not been done anywhere else in the world, to have clinicians and finance experts from the same organisations working together to, to, to I suppose the, this is a really strong tension. There isn't all the money in the world. There isn't all necessarily need or desire for all the healthcare in the world. And how do those two things come together to not create harmful healthcare, but also to keep within what is a publicly funded healthcare system. So that, those, I think we've sort of evolved into concepts that people have wanted to discuss and then moving again into sort of how do people practice realistic medicine again came from the people we were talking to. Realistic medicine champions in each health board doing realistic medicine projects and, and I think just keeping the conversation going that then started to introduce the valuing our workforce as well as that conversation about us as healthcare professionals of whatever type and the patients and the public but what about us as people what well, we were not I suppose right back the people the doctors I talked to and at that stage it was it was mostly doctors because that's where it started they were feeling that their own the pressure from on them meant they weren't as able to give good care, and so then what was it about them being cared for that needed to change? And I think we've woven that into the the last two reports because if you if you haven't got staff who are looked after, staff who feel valued, and staff who then are are able to care, they will not give good care for the people they're looking after. You you cannot 
you can't drag on resources. Burnt out people don't give good care. And that introduction then of that concept and then in the, the most recent report about stewardship of our NHS as a concept firstly but also as, a, as a, an organisation that, that we believe is the right way to provide universal healthcare free at the point of need and, and how the staff and that system need to be really nurtured because and some of that's about leadership, a lot of it's about leadership, compassionate leadership. So we, we've moved away from those initial concepts I suppose about the provision of care, healthcare, social care, right into the, I suppose, what are the nuts and bolts about what makes a, what makes a good system, actually. Mm. And that engagement of the people, engagement of the workforce, and that stewardship of the NHS, the organisation we're in, and the leadership and, and the drawing of the cogs, is that actually those, each cog can't move without moving another one, and if one of them is jammed, not the others can't work out. Actually, I find suddenly uh, during this, I'm telling you something I've never really thought that it is before. But that's what it seems to have evolved. Mm. So you talk about a lot of the pressure on our workforce. You must have a lot of pressure on you. How do you look after yourself? Um, so if you don't tell my orthopaedic surgeon, because I run, running is a good place to make up talks if you <laughs> haven't got any slides in your head. Um, and so I tried, yeah, tried to do some kind of rather feeble exercise of some sort because I think that clears my head. Uh, I think I get a lot of support from my family the, the, and the, the kids don't let you really get away with too much other than, <laughs> than um, lightening up a bit, do they? Uh, I suppose the sport friends are, are funny because they, they just don't listen. You know, there's no CMO there. There's, there's just the people that know you and, and make fun of you and sort of say, I saw you on TV, what on earth were you doing with your eyebrows? <laughs> and so you, don't, um, so you don't take yourself too seriously and that's a really good thing. Yeah. So if you could have a conversation with yourself at the start of your career, is there any advice that you would want to give? That's, that's a very good question. I think that if I looked back there were various points in my career journey where I, where, where I didn't do what I had set out to do. So I, I took a lot of... Um, in, I was very influenced by, by my first house job in Glasgow Royal Infirmary where I had a fantastic cardiologist consultant and fantastic gastroenterology consultant. And I wanted to be a medic and I really actually wanted to be a cardiologist. And I did lots that I could do and I... Didn't I wasn't successful. I did quite a lot of general medicine and I didn't end up then getting into a number to get a training job to do that as a career. And I changed because, in fact, partly there had been pregnant women I had seen as the medic and I remember I, the obstetrics had always appealed to me as the junior, but of course you don't do that when you qualify, you do your house jobs, that, that was medicine and surgery, and off I went into medicine. I kind of forgot that I'd enjoyed obstetrics. And so as obstetrics sort of opened itself up as, a, as a, an option. So having thought I would be a cardiologist, I wasn't, and then became an obstetrician and realised that at the time, I, I thought I was stuck. What was I doing? Why was I changing? Why didn't I stick at one thing? And 
In fact, if you look then to what I've just told you about realistic medicine, actually, I, I'm not sure if I hadn't been an obstetrician that I would ever have ended up in the government and that I would ever have ended up CMO and maybe I'd never have written realistic medicine. So, so the, what I would tell my younger self is that I don't think that something where you had planned it and either it doesn't work out or it's, there's a change, never think that that isn't anything other than an opportunity and that door opening rather than something that you think regret and, and in fact you can probably, particularly in a career in medicine, a career in healthcare, there are so many opportunities. So I would have, I would say to my younger self, look at the plan, the plan doesn't work out, make another plan. And, and don't think that that suddenly means that you're not going to either be happy or successful just because what you thought you were going to be happy doing isn't where you've ended up. So the op take the opportunity rather than regretting the, the, um, the change or the disappointment. And I think that sometimes we're railroaded into thinking you must pass that exam and you must get that job and you must be on that rotation and you, 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 what on earth are you thinking going off and doing something over there? And in fact, when life sort of muddles along and, and it's, most of these things are, can, can be really seen as something that you can, you can say, well, that, that taught me something different. I suppose another piece of that thinking you had a plain, a straightforward path is the piece about having children and work-life balance, or as I would rather call it, life-work balance. Why would you put work first? <laughs> <laughs> and that, for, for both women and men, actually that family life is really important. And I think that people say, how could you possibly have three children and do that job that you do? And how could you possibly combine them. And of course, you mustn't think that our particular choice or lifestyle choice or taking time off is a hindrance. Or sh I couldn't possibly have children and do that because, in fact, you end up limiting yourself with that. And if we look also at um, particularly Scandinavian countries who've had these sort of very good gender equality and very good maternity and paternity leave for, for years, they then have really stable economies, they have fantastic health care and of course are deemed the happiest countries in the world. I think we limit ourselves by saying I couldn't do it but actually society should be giving us much much more permission if you like and enabling it and in fact that's good for the country. So the, the, all of the thoughts of somebody on some kind of career track if medicine or our, our jobs in the NHS are putting um, restrictions on that, that to me is a bad thing. Anybody will learn from another pathway. And even like doing the clinical leadership fellowship gives you that mm -hmm. year of stepping out, which people are scared to do. They feel mm -hmm. like they need to be in the pipeline and get through as quickly as they can to become a consultant for 40 years. Yeah. When you don't have the same opportunities, you can, you've got so many opportunities as a trainee, which you can grab. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, I've even advised when some of the scouts were coming in and saying, oh, you know, I keep doing my on call and I'll keep, and I'm saying, no, step away. Just that, that you have tons of time to be over there, <laughs> yeah. to, to, to be in that treadmill, just take the, the year, enjoy it.